The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. So for those of you who haven't met Caitlin yet, she's one of the new secretaries. She works with the family ministries and she's in the main office. So, and she's around here. Be sure and introduce yourself uh, to her. Uh, So what I'd like to do is to start, I love Memorial Day, for those of you who are here who at one point served or currently serving in one of the branches of the military, would you please stand right now? If If you served or currently serving, go ahead and stand up. Let's all thank these guys. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. A real tender place in my own heart. Our daughter is a lieutenant in the Coast Guard and she serves on a cutter. She's the executive officer on a cutter outside of Cape Cod. And so, you know, I'm always so anxious, you know, when she's out at sea and sometimes she's out, um, not so much anymore, but sometimes for a couple of months at a time, drug interdiction, fisheries, things like that. And uh, so I'm always so thankful when she's back on shore. She called yesterday and uh, said that in, to honor Memorial Day, she, she made a cake. I think it was the first time she's ever made a cake and so white icing and, and strawberries for the, for the flag and, and the little blueberries. And she wanted to honor those that uh, work with her. And so I was thrilled. I wouldn't want to eat a piece, but I, I was thrilled. <laughs> but it's a, a very nice gesture. It's so amazing. You know, most kids or other kids will send pictures of their dog, send pictures of their cat. On Friday, I got a picture from Caroline. There was a great white shark that they were, <laughs> they were patrolling going up and down the East Coast. And uh, she followed this great white, as massive, I got, a, I got the picture on my phone, uh, it's a massive great white shark. So um, a very unusual life. And so thankful for those of you who have served in the military. It was a number of years ago, there was a famous artist. If you ever gone to Springfield, uh, Springfield, Illinois, to the Abraham Lincoln Museum or the library and visited, looked around, you saw some caricatures done by this guy, uh, Thomas Nass. He was actually an incredible painter, but he was well known because of these caricatures that he would do, political caricatures. Uh, actually, Lincoln said that he probably was elected because of the caricatures of of this guy, Thomas Nast. And they're, they're there at the library. Many of his paintings are in Princeton uh, right now. But so he's doing an exhibition in New York City. And so he had this easel, uh, this horizontal painting. And so all the people were there and he began painting. And uh, as he painted, people began to see, oh, wow, this is incredible. The most, most beautiful landscape he had ever seen. Six feet wide, three feet tall, incredible landscape filled with green meadows. And there were cattle and fields of grain and orchards and, and uh, buildings, farmhouses, surrounding buildings, this beautiful sky, fleecy clouds, and so he's holding his easel and his, um, what do you call the thing that has a paint on it? A halibut. No, that's a fish. <laughs> he's holding the halibut. No. <laughs> anyway, so whatever it was, he stepped aside and, every, and everybody just applauded, just went wild. It was the most beautiful landscape painting uh, they had ever seen. But he, he didn't put down his paints. He walked back up and those who wrote about and reported on the exhibition said he just took brushes and with dark, dark 
colors began to just scribble and stroke and, and deface the painting that he had just spent so much time uh, trying to perfect. And I just on and on, one writer said that it looked like he was a sadistic child with a paintbrush just going back and forth. He steps aside now, puts the paints down. He says, now I am finished. And people sat there just in shock. You know, why would this famous artist obliterate this painting? I think all of us this morning uh, can draw a correlation with our own lives. When we think of satisfaction in life, we have have a picture in our minds of what genuine satisfaction in life would look like. And the painting gets painted, and we're so excited, we're so happy, and then all of a sudden, things get dark. All of a sudden, there are these black lines just sort of smeared across and up and down. And all of a sudden, life just doesn't make sense anymore. And you wonder, why? Why is this happening? Is God doing it? Is somebody else doing it? Is the devil doing it? You know, somebody is just destroying my life with these wild, reckless, thoughtless strokes. I was talking to a gentleman after the first hour and, you know, retired here and um, uh, from another part of the country. Um, and his wife was just diagnosed with cancer. Somebody else, heart disease, divorce, uh, relational issues, job loss, financial collapse. They're, they're, why? Why does these kinds of things happen in life? And and we search for words. And I think Mick Jagger's words from the Rolling Stones made it so famous. I can't get no satisfaction. It's like you're looking at life and there just doesn't appear to be satisfaction anywhere. Isaiah 55 tells us there is a place to find ultimate abundant satisfaction. And it's not in the place where we think we're going to find it. Because we think we're going to find it. Oh, the portrait, the landscape is going to have a a picture of health. Then all of a sudden we get sick. So we think, well, then it's got to be in healing. If it's not, if it's sickness, then uh, abundance and satisfaction has got to be healing. Or if it's in job loss, then obviously I've got I've to get a job. I've got to find a new job. Perhaps then it would be finding a spouse. Maybe if I can just find a mate, somebody to share the rest of my life with. Maybe that's the portrait of satisfaction. And then all of a sudden, there's divorce. Maybe it's the ideal job and just the moment we think we have the ideal job, the ideal position, all of life unravels. And we begin the search again. Obviously, it's got to be enough money. And then the stock, stock market collapses And we think the solution has got to be the lottery. And we wonder, why? Why 
when I have a picture of what abundant life looks like, why these massive black strokes throughout my life. And Isaiah wants to tell us that the answer is going to surprise us. Much like those who were in the auditorium in New York City in the late 1800s. As they watch Thomas Nast destroy the painting, he steps aside, he says, now it's done. He invited two stagehands to bring a golden frame and place it around the painting. And people were sitting there, are you kidding? And then he instructed them to turn the picture upright. And when they did, they saw this incredible, beautiful waterfall, water plunging over the precipice of dark rock, skirted with trees and flora. And the audience went wild. They were heaping praise at the beautiful work of art they just looked at. We see in Isaiah 55 this chapter ending with that kind of praise. The question is, how do you get there? What we find in the first couple verses is that God alone offers, offers this kind of abundant praise and satisfaction. He says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, he who has no money, come, buy, eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, eat what is good, delight yourselves in rich food. What he's saying is all the things that we think really will satisfy us in life, really won't do it. They're, they're not going to do it. They will just leave us thirsty. They will leave us hungry. And yet Isaiah wants us to be truly satisfied. Come to the waters. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Come and eat. So John, the Apostle John, picks up so much of the imagery from Isaiah and John paints a beautiful portrait of this scenario in John chapter 4. He tells a story of a young lady. A young lady who all had all the dreams of what life should be like, what satisfaction in life would look like, and it just didn't turn out that way. From her perspective, it was just dark stroke after dark stroke after dark stroke painted across her life until she met Jesus. So Jesus, his disciples, came to her. It was actually outside of town, about a half mile outside of the town called Sychar. It was in the heat of the day, toward the end of the afternoon. And here's this lady drawing water. And you wonder, why was she outside of town? Why, why wouldn't she be inside the town? Why, shouldn't, why wouldn't she be at the well inside car, drawing water in the morning like everybody else did when it wasn't so hot? Well, we find out that she was a social outcast for many reasons. So Jesus offers her the same satisfaction 
that Isaiah presents to us in Isaiah 55. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone to buy some food in the city. The Samaritan woman said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you just knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She didn't get it. And so the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You see, she was only looking at life from the horizontal painting. All she saw is what she thought real life should be like. And when she looked at what life was supposed to be like from her vantage point, all she could see was black stroke after black stroke after black stroke, mutilating the painting. Are you greater than our father Jacob? And he gave us a well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. But Jesus said to her, look, everyone who drinks of this water... You, if you think satisfaction in life is going to come from the horizontal like this, you'll never be satisfied. You're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give to him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, whether it be Jesus the Messiah in John chapter 4, or Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 55, both offer a delightful feast, even when momentarily it looks like life is beyond hope. Until by faith, the portrait gets flipped up right, and we can begin to see life from an eternal perspective. Just a couple of chapters later, you see the same thing again with the feeding of the multitude. Again, he, he flips the portrait upright. Don't work for the food that perishes, horizontal, but for the food that endures to eternal life that the Son of Man can give. So we find out God alone offers this kind of abundant satisfaction. But then secondly, we find out that it is found in God himself. Verses 3 to 6. Incline your ear. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I'll make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Behold, you shall, um, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that, you, that, that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You see the invitation, the verbs are for everyone. He says, now incline your ear. Now lean in, lean in because you need to hear this. I want you to come to hear, to seek, to call. That's the invitation to all, whether it be the woman at the well, the Samaritan at the well, uh, whether it be in the days of Isaiah, uh, for all of us today, the invitation is come, hear, seek, call if you really want abundance in life. Now, right now we're in the middle of a basketball tournament. I, I guess, you know, the, they've just finished all that stuff and 
professionally they're doing the same thing. If you have ever been to a basketball game at City High or West High, remember they, you would go in. Do they still stamp your hand as you go in to the gym? Do they still do that or not? Yeah, they still do that. Well, that's because all the concessions are outside the gym, bathrooms are outside. So if you want to get back in, you have to have that stamp on, on your hand. So heaven really isn't like that. It's not like you just need a, a stamp on your hand in, in order to get in. You don't get to heaven uh, merely by having a stamp on your hand. You don't get to heaven by praying a prayer, walking down an aisle, joining a church, uh, being part of a youth group, uh, getting baptized. Uh, not that those things aren't, aren't good and aren't, imp and aren't important, but um, the fact of the matter is you can't get to heaven, you can't have a relationship with God unless there are those verbs, come here, seek, call. In the New Testament, we would use the word metanoia or we would use the word repentance. Those are the words that would really underscore the New Testament word repentance. And uh, so you really can't turn to God. You can't get in. There, there's not a stamp. It's, it's this term of repentance versus something that you do. Okay? So repentance really begins a new relationship with God. And repentance isn't merely just confessing things that you've done wrong. That's not what repentance is. I mean, it certainly would incorporate part of, part of that. In other words, behavior modification doesn't make you a Christian. Now, I'm going to make that a double-edged sword. Behavior modification doesn't make you a Christian. Whether, if in your mind repentance is, I've got to stop stealing, I've got to quit smoking dope, I've got to quit doing these bad things, again, that can certainly be part of it, but it's far more than that. Repentance also means I've got to stop doing those things that could be very good. In other words, repentance ultimately, the, the main sin of repentance is that when we worship and serve an alternative God, and then that can look very positive. It doesn't have to look negative. It can look positive. In other words, I, I'm going to do what is right. I am going to feed the poor. I'm going to heal the sick. I'm going to protect the planet. I'm going to do all these really good things, and I'm going to prove my moral goodness by performing doing these good things. The word repentance means you have to repent for that as well. That is a false god. Anything that you try and prove yourself or do yourself, it even, it, it even could be through your achievement or your family or your, or your career or the evil stuff that you're attracted to as well. could be any of those things. So repentance is confessing the things besides God that you're relying on, that you find your hope in, your significance in, your security in. So you have to repent from all of those things, not just the things that you've done wrong, the lying, the cheating, and the stealing, etc., but also what motivates the good works in our lives. You must repent from those things as well. No one will be saved through good works. So instead, it's by faith 
by faith, trusting, come, hear, seek, call in God. We looked at this last week. Uh, who is God? Well, it's Jehovah Adonai. It's, it's trusting and depending. It's trying to please anything, even myself or my parents or my teachers or society, rather than Jehovah Adonai. He is the supreme authority. He is the supreme owner. He deserves utmost reverence and utmost obedience. He deserves my total and complete allegiance. Trying to please anything or anybody other than that is serving a false god. So I must come, hear, seek, call, trust in faith. Jesus Christ. And that trusting in God and God alone, Jehovah Adonai, is ipso facto repentance. So repentance plus the gift of faith is what the Bible would call conversion or salvation. Notice Isaiah goes on to say, it, the satisfaction, it's available to absolutely everybody. In verses 1 to 7, notice, everyone who thirsts, verse 1, a witness to the peoples, verse 4, to the nation, verse 5, the nations that you don't know, the wicked, the unrighteous. John puts it differently in another very famous passage, for God so loved the, what's the next word? The word, he uses the word for cosmos, the, the evil system. God so loves the entire evil system that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, it's for everybody. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and to the Greek. Now, why? Why would it be necessary for the um, gospel to be available to absolutely everyone? It's because Acts 4.12 says there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So throughout the book of Isaiah, you see this amazing understanding that the gospel is designed for absolutely everyone. You see it throughout Isaiah. You obviously see it throughout the book of Acts. This is the big enlightening um, eureka for the disciples seeing that, boy, the, the same, this gospel's not just for the Jew, it's for the Gentiles as well. I mean, the Lord had to send a special vision to Peter in Acts chapter 11 uh, to help him understand. Then he had to take it to the, to the gathered church assembly, so to speak, and uh, it amazed them that Gentiles were actually part of the everyone as well. So, and Jesus constantly blew people's minds with this. You know, especially, I mean, here, John chapter 4, this woman at the well, th that he would reach out to her like that, a, a Samaritan. And yet, just a chapter earlier, he did the same thing with a Jew. I mean, think of that. It, it's for everyone. John chapter 3, he witnesses uh, to a man. John chapter 4, he witnesses to a woman. John chapter 3, uh, Nicodemus is a Jew. But in John chapter 4, this woman is a Samaritan. In John 3, uh, Nicodemus was a man of the highest moral standing, but this woman in uh, John chapter 4 was, her satisfaction in life was trying to find a mate. She, was, she wanted a mate. She thought that would give her satisfaction. 
And she, goes, she marries the first one, doesn't work. Marries the second one, doesn't work. Marries the third one, doesn't work. Marries the fourth one, doesn't work. You'd think she'd sort of get the picture now. Marries the fifth one, it doesn't work. She says, forget the marriage part. I'm just going to shack up with a guy. And it doesn't work. John 3, you know, he's very well known. We know his name. We know his position. John chapter 4. She's totally unknown. We don't even know her name. We call her the woman at the well. John 3, he's one of the greatest of all leaders. John 4, it's just a common, ordinary person whose life looks like that, that portrait horizontal on the easel just, just destroyed. That's what we identify with. And Jesus takes the same amount of time, the same amount of compassion for both the woman in John 4 or the man in John chapter 3. Same amount of time, same amount of compassion. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Satisfaction in life has nothing to do with finding the right guy. It has nothing to do with finding the right position, Nicodemus. It has everything to do with finding me looking at life vertically. Well, the gospel doesn't make a lot of logical sense. Notice how it's God who, has, for us to have this, he has to pardon. Let the wicked, verse 7, of, we're back in Isaiah 55, verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This, the word is so incredible. Salah is the word. So I, I read Bruce Walkey, theological word book of the Old Testament, did a word study on it the last couple of weeks. And it's the, it's the word pardon or to forgive. And it is only, in the Old Testament, it is only used of God. It's nothing somebody else can do for another individual. Only God can salah somebody else. Pardon somebody else. You actually see this word again in Leviticus 16, where it's God, where, where God ultimately is one during the day of atonement, can pardon only if somebody's heart has been humbled. They've humbled uh, their hearts before God. And uh, so we see it's God who pardons. Well, and you think, well, why? Why, does, why the necessity of the Isaiah 53? If God can pardon us, why send Jesus to the cross? I mean, seriously. If God could just come up to me and say, Jeff, I forgive you, then why send his only begotten son to suffer and die on a cross? Is that really necessary? If, if God is sovereign, is that really necessary? And well, what we find out from the lips of Peter, Jesus, Isaiah, Paul, is that it was absolutely necessary. There was no other way to do it. For God to remain totally holy and totally righteous, he could not just turn his back on sin. In other words, there had to be suffering in order to forgive. Now, keep this together because I think too frequently somebody might wrong us and we go, and they come up for an apology. Oh, do you forgive me? Oh, yeah, I forgive you. 
So understand, for there to be true forgiveness, there has to be suffering that goes along with it, or else it's not true forgiveness. So when I was a kid, I was seven, I think seven. There's a moral to this story. The moral is, moms and dads, don't give your sons slingshots for their birthday. Uh, so my mother and dad gave me a slingshot for my birthday, and I was with one of my friends. He had a slingshot too. That's why I wanted it, because he had one. So we were going through the neighborhood, this typical pre-World War II kind of neighborhood in New Orleans, this you know, little wooden framed house, three bedrooms, kitchen, bathroom, one bathroom. And so we were up on blocks in New Orleans, of course, because it flooded just about every day. And uh, just literally about every day. So we were walking down the street. And I had my slingshot. And of course, you use bowlies or marbles to shoot with your slingshot. And he had bowlies and marbles to shoot with his slingshot. And we were walking down the street. And somebody had built a new house. This is 1957. And so somebody had built a new it was the only brick house in the whole neighborhood, and it had a big picture glass window in the front. And so we were across the street, and I asked him, I said, hey, do you think you could hit that window with your slingshot? He said, I don't know. I said, go ahead and give it a try. So he reared back, and he, I could tell he was holding his hand up too high, so I knew he would miss. Ah, but I knew I could hit it. And uh, loaded up with a big bowlie, Shot, of course, shattered the picture glass window. And I, if they would have had a stopwatch on me, I'm sure I'd have broken the world record for the hundred. Uh, we ran so fast back home. And then, you know, obviously I wasn't a Christian. I would have never done it. No. <laughs> but I um, got home and I, I ended up telling my dad. So my dad was an FBI agent, okay, so that put a little extra pressure on me. So I told mom and dad what I had done and they took me to that house for me to confess. And so was it enough for them? Oh, I forgive you. Was, was that really forgiveness? Oh, I, I forgive you. No, the, the window shattered. There has to be payment. Somebody is going to experience suffering. Believe me, me going back, there was some suffering there, believe me. But there had to be a payment that was made. The window had to be fixed. And so that was, so God just can't say to us, oh, I forgive you. No big deal. I don't need to send Jesus to the cross. There has to be payment for our sin. Uh, so pardon or forgiveness means absorbing the debt of the misdeed. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross. What that does, the suffering the suffering that Jesus did on the cross allows for justice to be made and also for love to be poured out. Without the suffering, there can't really be love and reconciliation. There can't be the satisfaction of justice and there can't really be reconciliation and love. Not only that, without the pouring out the suffering for sin, not only can there not be moral justice and merciful love, evil can't be destroyed without destroying us. So, for you and for me, when it comes to somebody offending us, 
I mean, we quickly go up and we, we oh, that was wrong. Will you forgive me? Yeah, I'll forgive you. You know, it's sort of a, a little trite kind of deal like that. And if there's not suffering that accompanies the forgiveness, there's really not love. And what remains is an awful lot of, of envy and jealousy and bitterness destroys us from the inside out and it destroys relationships as well. So for genuine forgiveness to take place, there has to be accompanying suffering. Somebody's got, the payment has to be made there. So forgiveness is always a form of costly suffering. It always requires an action for every believer. That's why in Colossians chapter 3 it says, Bearing with one another. That's, that's the best translation of that word. To bear. To bear the load with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Now it's going back to Isaiah 55. That same kind of forgiveness. So you must also forgive. It's so unusual. It's so counterintuitive. The whole, the gospel, it flips everything upside down. It, it flips the portraits of life on, on its head. God's ways are sovereign. That's flipped up on its head. You can read Romans chapter 9. 9, 10, and 11 would be great. On the, Paul even quotes part of this here. How God is sovereign. And uh, thirdly, how... how how will God give satisfaction even to the undeserving? He says, For the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but the water to water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater. So shall my word that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the, in, in the thing for which I sent it. And, you know, Luke tells us, I mean, throughout there's a, there's a parable of the, of the sower and the seed. Luke actually quotes part of this. Uh, you know, the seed is the word. He talks about the parable. The seed is the word of God. Isaiah's already said it's going to stand forever. Everything else is going to fade, but the word's going to stand forever. And the point is genuine faith will never let go of the word. The word will never fail. And so in the Gospels, we see the same picture of, of what really will give life and meaning and purpose in the Gospels, we have pictures of this, like the parable of the sower and the seed in Luke 8, Mark 4, Matthew 13. I'm just going to summarize it real quickly. Um, the seed is the word of God. It's going to last, but the reception of it can look very differently. So if I were to boil it down in just to a couple of phrases, I would say this. The hard heart says to God, I don't need you. The shallow heart says, that's the, the seed on the, on the hard path where the devil takes it away. I don't need you. The shallow heart says, I don't want you. I don't want you. Just looks at life, the rocks of light, the difficult times of life. I don't need this. I don't want you. And then the crowded heart basically says, 
I want, with the thorns, there's something, I want something else. I don't like this path. There are other things that I really want. The faithful heart says this. The faithful heart says, Jehovah Adonai, you are all I want. You are all I need. Nothing else will do. Faith that appears a short time isn't faith at all. Genuine faith will never let go of Jesus because genuine faith realizes that ultimate satisfaction in life will only come through him. And then this, this satisfaction, this persevering faith in the Messiah will result in joy and peace and singing and transformation. I love this, these uh, last couple verses, because they are a picture of what the gospel does in our life and around the world. For you shall go out in joy, be uh, led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. All the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of a briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So the gospel really, I mean, you know, you look at our, um, you know, loving God, loving other, serving the world, you, th you think of the personal conversion, community formation, cultural transformation. It's all right there in those last two verses. You know, he's, he's talking about, uh, you're going to go out in joy. You're going to be led forth in peace. Um, it, it is only through Isaiah 53 it's only through Jesus' life and death and resurrection that we have the means for personal salvation, personal peace with God. But notice how it goes on. These last couple of verses go on from there. It talks, of, it talks about the influence then of our lives on the lives of everyone else around us. And Isaiah's talked about this, whether it be providing justice to the oppressed, and to the marginalized, you know, the loving others, whether it be compassion and healing to those who are diseased, to those who are dying, whether it be uh, providing community, it talks about that specifically here, to the isolated, to the lonely, providing hope and unity for the stranger and to the alien. And it also talks about the influence that you and I have in terms of being stewards of the material world, uh, delighting in beauty, delighting in cultivation, maintaining the natural creation, whether it be through science or horticulture or animal husbandry or art or poetry or music, so that, so that, listen, listen to this. This is what the gospel does. And ultimately, of course, the ultimate fulfillment of this is in, glor in glory, in glorification. But, but notice, we get to be a part of this now. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Do you see what the gospel does? The gospel is a message of absolute transformation. It starts in my heart. 
It goes from my heart to the way it impacts others. How God has forgiven me, now I am called to give that same forgiveness, that same love, that same compassion. It means suffering for me to forgive others and to restore relationships, whether it be others like me or others unlike me whether it be the stranger and the alien or whether it be those who are lonely and marginalized and oppressed. So what you see just in these last couple of verses is actually what the gospel does is begin to reverse the curse. Do you see? The, everything is mentioned right here. The whole curse begins to get reversed and it's pictured for us in the gospel. Ultimately, we see this in glory. Ultimately, we see it in the kingdom. Ultimately, we see it in heaven. Incredible chapter. Let's all stand up. We'll close in prayer. Just before, before I pray, would you just look inside your own heart and ask yourself a very real question, and that is, where are you really looking for satisfaction? Is it in a person? Is it in acceptance? Is it in a spouse? Is it in your children? Is it in your vocation? Where are you looking for satisfaction? More money, more things? If there's anything that's made clear in this passage, it's the, the easel of your life. The canvas of your life, if that's it, will be obliterated. There will be dark stroke after dark stroke, line after line, and you will sit there looking at that at some point in your life, wondering what happened. Jesus is the only one who can flip that portrait upright and help you to see life from a whole different perspective because it's Jesus and Jesus alone that can give ultimate satisfaction, living water, bread that will eternally satisfy. If you've never put your faith, your trust in Jesus, please consider doing that this morning. If you're on that journey and would like to talk to somebody, there'll be a few of us uh, standing up here at the uh, up here at the stage after the service, and you can just slip up and and to talk to one of us here. We'd love to chat with you about what it means to be a Christian. So, Lord, um, we just thank you, thank you that you are all we need, and uh, we just thank you that we can be a part of the gospel and the way it transforms our lives and the world around us. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.